All right, Salt City, coming at you from my standing desk today. So don't say we're not innovating here at Salt City. I, uh, I was thinking about one of my first ever theology classes that I, that I took um, when I was working on my master's. And I, I took ethics with Dr. Alex Tuckness. Now, if you recognize that name, it's because uh, Alex actually spoke at Salt City earlier in the year. And if you remember him, he's a super down to earth, humble guy, but don't let him fool you. The dude is a genius. Okay. Studied at Princeton and Cambridge. All right. So he, he knows what he's doing. And I walked into that class and he started out our ethics class by saying, Hey, uh, let's, let's just talk about ethics. And, and I actually want to ask you guys some questions. And so he started asking us some questions about ethics and I was a class talker. Uh, maybe a little bit of that guy. And so I started talking and I, I started answering some questions. And then uh, he would ask me questions about my answers. And I thought at first, you know, he's just following up with me. He's just trying to, to clarify what I'm saying. And then we got about four questions deep. And I not only was confused, but I wasn't sure that I had ever actually known anything true at all. The, and, and then the dude proceeded for about 45 minutes to an hour to absolutely eviscerate our class with smiling questions. And so we, we were 20-something guys that had opinions on theology and how the world should be and how the church should be. And then Alex started asking us questions. And so I kind of caught on to this. And by the end of the class, I, I, I turned around. And I said, Dr. Tuckness, okay, we don't know what we're talking about. What do you think? And then he paused and he said, you know, I think that's about enough for today. And then he just shut down the class without ever explaining anything to us. And so here's the deal. And, and that's actually how the, the, the entire class ended up being is he never told us what we should believe. He just tore down everything that we already did believe. And so we left that thing completely unsatisfied, for sure confused and a little mad, but also we left humble and wiser. And I think Ecclesiastes is like that is that the purpose primarily of Ecclesiastes is not to give us a bunch of sort of neat answers to our questions, but to leave us questioning ourselves so that we can become a little bit more humble and a little bit more wise, which is actually a very non-Western thing. I think that's hard for us. We tend to think about church as the place that we go to sort of figure out God so that we then can leave and go do some things for him. But Ecclesiastes won't let us do it. It makes us sit in the tension of God's character and what life is. And, and so I want, I want to read um, to you guys this text for today. And I want us to sit in this tension a little bit together. So we're in, in Ecclesiastes 3. Um, I'll read to you starting verse 1 here. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what has been planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones. A time to gather stones together. A, a time to embrace. A time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek. A time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. 
right? So that's a, a pretty famous section of Ecclesiastes that, that maybe some of you have heard quoted before. And uh, essentially what it's telling us is that wisdom is understanding what time it is and how to act appropriately, right? So you don't plant flowers in December and you don't wear a winter coat in July. And weeping when it's time to rejoice or rejoicing when it's time to weep is the moral equivalent of wearing a winter coat in July. And so what wisdom looks like is understanding not only what the time is, but how to act in accordance with that time. But, but here's the thing is I think too often we stop too quickly and too simply on that idea. So yes, it's absolutely true that what Ecclesiastes 3 is teaching us is how to understand what time it is and how to respond appropriately. But I think it's actually telling us a little bit more than that. And so the, the structure of this text is that what I just read you is a poem. And then underneath of that poem is the interpretation of what that poem means and how to apply it to our lives. And so I don't want to stop there, but I want to keep reading. And we're actually going to zoom in on verses 9 through 15 because it's the interpretation of what we just read. So let me keep reading here. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the busyness that God has given to ch the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. All right, so I want us to focus in for a second on the second half of verse 11 that says, also he has put eternity into man's heart. So a couple weeks ago, Jake Oswald asked us a question in Connection Group. So if you guys know Jake Oswald, he's like the resident Salt City philosopher. So the dude on a regular basis gets this weird dreamy grin on his face and then he throws out this like philosophical question or this idea that he's been thinking about and he just wants you to think about it with him. And so we did that the other day and had the super philosophical Connection Group and it was great. Love you, Jake. That was fun. Um, and here's the question that he threw out. I don't remember the exact question, but it was something along the lines of, what were the times when you were a kid that you just felt absolute pleasure in life? Like you just felt like you were alive and you got lost in the moment. And I thought about a lot of moments when I was a kid, but I actually thought specifically about this moment that I had in college. It was at a, a salt company retreat and, and I skipped something and I just went outside and it was a perfect night, completely clear. And I just laid underneath the stars for hours and just looked at the stars and thought about God. And in that moment, I somehow simultaneously felt really big and really small. Like really big in the sense that, that I'm a part of this huge universe, this, this thing that that is somehow all interconnected and God's this big God that made this big world. But I also felt super small in that I realized my own 
insignificance in the moment. Okay, that, that thing, I think maybe your moment hasn't been exactly like that, but I think all of us know what it's like to have moments like that where we get wrapped up in the bigness of this world and the bigness of eternity. That thing in you that kind of comes alive in that moment is eternity written on your heart. And it, it's, it's this desire to be something bigger than you are or to be a part of something bigger than just this world. And the question is, is why is that there? Well, again, let's look back at verse 11. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Okay, so it says, God put eternity in man's heart, that thing that we touch up against that wants to be limitless, to be a part of a bigger story than ourselves. He's put that in our hearts, but why? It says, so that we can't find out what God has done from beginning to end. That word, that or that phrase, find out, means to figure out or to discover by learning. So what this is saying is that this, there's this longing in our hearts to sort of figure out this world and our place in it and how we're all a part of this story. But God has put that in our hearts specifically to show us that we can't figure it out. That, that we can't understand the answers to life, that we can't, we can only get these little glimpses of moments. That's the poem at the beginning, that, that we can have this moment where we're weeping or mourning, but we can't figure out how the two things to come, to come together. And everything in life seems to be cyclical where you move from one moment to the next, but you can't figure out the overarching big story. So this is what this is saying is that life is unresolved. Life is like a song that plays to the end and it gets cut off right before that final resolving chord. It's a math problem that you can understand pieces of, but you keep getting to the end and it's the wrong answer. And here's why life is like that is because God designed it to put you in that tension. So, so maybe a better analogy is God actually being active in what's happening. So, so life is like a puzzle that you, you get a couple corner pieces, you get a couple things put together, but then God comes along and he takes away some of your pieces so that you can't actually finish the puzzle. You can't see the whole picture. And let's be honest with ourselves. We hate that. Like even that idea that God would do that to you, which we'll talk about why God does that in a minute, but a lot of us hate that idea that God would be in a sense withholding from us or that he would make us live in the tension. And we hate it when we can't resolve aspects of our life that we try to understand and try and bring into resolution. And that's because we want to understand and control our world. We badly want to have control of our own lives, to be the architect of our lives, to design them ahead of time so that everything will be go according to plan, right? Think about this, parents. You know that moment when you're disciplining your kid, and at first it starts as discipline. You're correcting because it's the right thing and because you love them, but somewhere along the line, something else happens to you and you get frustrated, you get angry, you lose a little bit of self-control. And somewhere in there, you actually aren't disciplining anymore, but you're trying to vie for control. 
And, and why is it that, that, that your kid can make you so angry or, or can make you so frustrated? It's because a three-year-old can expose the foundations of your perceived control of your life. What you realize in that moment is that you can't make your kid obey. And, and a three-year-old can actually manipulate you in certain ways. It exposes your complete lack of control. Or let's talk about efficiency. So I'll save you another um, Jordan tries to do practical things story, okay? But, but let's just say this weekend, if you were a betting person and you had to bet on how many times I went to Menards and Home Depot in one day uh, and the line was set at three, you should take the over, okay? It was an incredibly inefficient day. I'll just leave it at that. But here's the deal. I was, I was really frustrated by the total lack of efficiency in that day. Why? What do I have to do? I'm quarantined. Like, if I didn't get it done on Saturday, I can do it today. I got nothing scheduled tomorrow night, Tuesday night. There's nothing solid on my schedule ever. Okay, so why am I trying to be so efficient? Well, here's the answer is because I want things to go according to my plan. And so some of you that are, that you're so wrapped up in productivity in efficiency in your your home or your life or your job going the way that you planned for it to go and when it doesn't go that way it's incredibly frustrating to you because the universe is refusing to submit to your lordship or let's talk coronavirus it started out throwing off all of our perceived control and we were struggling with life being different than we had pictured it and now what's happening is that the world is starting to, to split off into sort of polarized hot takes on what we should do when it comes to the coronavirus. And, and so there's some people that are saying, you know, we should loosen restrictions and um, it's, it's killing our economy and so we've got to open things back up. And there's other people, and so you're frustrated right now, and there's other people that once things do open back up, you'll be frustrated because you think it was the wrong decision and it's not valuing human life and all of this stuff. And so what's happening is we have these polarized hot takes and we're arguing with each other. Why? What's happening? Well, we're playing God. We somehow have convinced ourselves that we have the answers to the world's problems, that, that we have enough knowledge to, to understand how a globalized economy will function and that if we just made these strategic moves that we could fix everything or, or that we understand how a pandemic will spread or not spread and, and we have enough understanding to be able to figure that out. And so we're presenting a solution to the world's problems. We're playing at God. And guys, what was, what was the original sin of Adam and Eve? It's that they didn't want to depend on God. They wanted to be God. They didn't want to trust his knowledge of the world and his description to them of the way to live. They wanted to know things themselves. They wanted control. They, and that desire for control is what actually ruined the world. But this is what I want you to see is the reason why we're vying for control of our own lives is because we want Eden back. We want our lives to be good again, to be the things that we designed it to be or want it to be. But you have to see 
that the very thing that you're using to try and restore Eden is the same thing that initially killed it. It's that vying for control, that desire to be God. And here's the deal. God isn't having it. He, he won't allow you to maintain this illusion of control. And so in God's world, your repeated attempts to control your life or control what happens in your circumstances crash up against the reality of God's world. And you just can't manipulate it. You just can't control it. And so this is, this is what we've all got to come to grips with is that you have never been in control of anything in your life, ever. You have never ultimately been in control. And there's those moments in your life where you, you realize your lack of control over things, and they're terrifying, aren't they? You actually live in that state all the time. And God is pushing up against your desire to control your life and to control the world. And, and look, that desire for control can come in different ways, right? So you can try and control your life and control God through skepticism, right? So, so you almost put God on trial with your questions about how he's operating in the world and you're asking him to justify himself, to prove himself to you as if he had to justify how he operates the world. Or you can try to control God through your religiosity, through your morality. So you try to live this, this really good life of following God, and you try to put him in your debt so that he has to respond to you. He has to bless you. But again, that control is a facade. It's an illusion. And here's why God exposes it. The second half of verse 15, God has done it so that people fear before him. God exposes the illusion of your control over your life so that you will sit back and realize the absolute power that he has and worship him. See, what Ecclesiastes 3 is saying is that God is categorically different from you and worthy of your respect. Verse 14 I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. Everything that God puts into place lasts for eternity. He's not bound by time like we are. He doesn't have to live in one moment like we do because he's experiencing all of the moments at the same time because God invented time. And so he's outside of it. And so what to us looks like a progression of moments God is experiencing all at once. And, and God, he doesn't go back and forth on aspects of his character, right? So it's not like he's loving one minute and then just the next minute. He's loving, completely loving all the time, completely just all the time, completely kind all the time, completely powerful all the time. And all of those characteristics of who he is come together at once all the time. And so nothing can be added to him. Nothing can be added to his works. Nothing can be changed about what he wants to take place in the world. And, and look at COVID as an example of that. Look at how easy it was for God to stop the world. We thought we were safe with our powerful economy and our routines and rhythms in life. And God, with just one little touch of his finger, brought the world to a screeching halt. It's easy for him. 
And so we tend to, again, to try to challenge God's authority in life to cross-examine him, but God isn't on the stand while we cross-examine him and ask him questions about how the world works. Instead, God is holding us in his hand like we're a baby bird. He's, I mean, we are tiny and we're just there in his hands. Now that is either incredibly comforting or incredibly terrifying, depending entirely on how you respond to it. So if you spend your entire life pecking at his hand, doubting him, questioning him, trying to challenge him with your morality, that's a terrifying place to be. But if you spend your life accepting the reality of who he is, the bigness of who he is, and the smallness of who you are, embracing his control, not your control, that actually can be an incredibly comforting thing because God will use his strength to protect you. And this is what that looks like to embrace his strength and his control is that you just let go of your desire to manipulate and plan your life and you embrace every circumstance that God brings your way as an intentional gift for him. Literally every circumstance you embrace. So, so hear me on this. This is where all of that theology that we just talked about, this is where this gets gets practical. I think we've missed the fundamental truth of how to be happy and how to live a meaningful life. We think that we create happiness and meaning by changing our circumstances, right? So we look at our life and we find the things in it that we don't like, and we try to change those circumstances. And we think if I can just have that, if I can just change this, if my life would just be like that, then I'll be happy. But here's the problem with that is for the rest of your life, you'll be playing negative circumstance whack-a-mole. Like you're going to get one of those down and then three more are going to pop up. You're never going to catch up. And so this is what I want you to see God is saying through Ecclesiastes is that the secret of contentment is found not in changing your circumstances, but embracing them. Reminds me of Philippians 4, where Paul talks about how he's learned to be content in every circumstance. That's actually the secret of contentment. Whatever circumstance comes your way, whether it's mourning or weeping, or whether it's joy and dancing, you embrace it as a gift and intentionally given to you by God. And you embrace your total lack of control of anything in your life, and you accept whatever comes your way. Guys, I heard one of the most Christian and Ecclesiastes things that I've heard for a while from some random lady that I walked past the other day. I was on a walk thinking about Ecclesiastes, kind of in the zone, didn't even see her in her yard. And all of a sudden, she was talking to me. I was like, whoa. Um, But then this is what she said. She said, happy coronavirus, even if you didn't want it. And I was like, yeah, cool lady. And then I kept walking. And I thought about it. I went, oh my gosh, that's literally the message of Ecclesiastes 3 is regardless of if you wanted coronavirus, it is the circumstance that you're in, and so you embrace it. In other words, whether you want something or not is irrelevant to if it is good for you. 
And so you believe in God's goodness towards you as his kid, and you embrace whatever he brings your way. Now, if that feels impossible, I want to remind you that Jesus actually did it before he ever asked you to do it. So Jesus had the perfect circumstances in heaven. He is God himself, and so he wasn't living in the back and forth, the cyclical nature of the moments limited in time. He was experiencing everything all at once, and in his mind, it all was good, but he chose to enter humanity and to enter time, and he began to embrace some of the limitations of humanity. And he experienced some of the awful circumstances of the world that we live in. We, we talked about this on Easter where Jesus is standing before the tomb of Lazarus. He is the God who will make everything turn into good. He knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but what does he do in that moment? He weeps. He embraces that moment and ultimately he prays in the garden asking God to deliver him from these awful circumstances that were about to come to him on the cross. He's honest with God. He's not suppressing his feelings. He's, he's a healed enough person to be able to go there with what's happening in his life. And he asks God to remove those circumstances from him. But at the end of the day, when God says no, he embraces those circumstances and he quietly goes like a lamb led to the slaughter. He sees God behind everything that's going on in the world and he trusts him. And it's through that embracing of Jesus' circumstances that he transforms and saves you. Jesus did it before he ever asks you to do it. And so if we embrace that the way that Jesus did, here's what that practically allows you to do. It allows you to live present in the moment and to deeply experience whatever is happening in your life the way that only a Christian can. And what I mean by that is when you're, when you're an unhealed person, you can't fully experience the depth of life because you have defense mechanisms keeping you from experiencing the, the things that you're afraid of or, or you're too afraid to experience raw, unfiltered joy because you're nervous that it'll end. But as a Christian, you're healed and whole in Christ, which means that you can experience the fullness of life. And so what this looks like is, Instead of going to a funeral and trying to figure out why they died, you just cry. When you're in a great phase in life and you're enjoying the moment, instead of getting nervous that it'll end or trying to figure out how to never let it end, you just soak in the moment and enjoy the fact that God gave it to you. And this idea of living in the moment, because psychologists, philosophers, sociologists, for a long time have been saying that one of the keys to human happiness is learning the art of constantly living in the moment. And the reason why they've been observing that is because God created the world that way. It's a biblical idea. I want to look at verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. All right, so let's take goodness first. How do you experience goodness by living in the moment? Well, Jesus said that the good life 
was a life of serving and loving other people. You can only do that in the moment, right? So if you're busy looking back at the old days, maybe the old days of the community that you used to have, you'll fail to love the people that are in front of you. If you're busy looking forward to retirement or how you're going to make ends meet at the end of the month, you won't be able to love and help the person who's in front of you that needs help. And in particular, you'll be able to fight off anxiety and stress in your life. Here's what anxiety is, is it's attempting to control your future. You're looking forward at what's coming and you're trying to manipulate it and control it through worrying about it. But if you're able to just live in the present moment, here's what that'll mean is you'll actually be able to love people better. Okay, which I know might sound a little odd, the connection between anxiety and stress and love, but think about this. When's the last time you met a super stressed out, anxious person and you walked away from that conversation going, man, I just feel loved by them. No, anxious people are self-consumed and so they're, they're unable to love. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6, 26 through 27. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? You see, he's just saying anxiety is not practical. Live in the present and it not only will be better for you, but it'll be better for the people in your life. And Jesus demonstrated that he was in the moment. And so he was able to be interrupted from his important business and focus on the people who are around them and love them. So that's how you live a good life by being in the moment. You also can be joyful by living a life present in the moment. Here's what that means is you sit down to enjoy a meal. And instead of thinking about the table you wish you had, you just enjoy the one that you're sitting at. Instead of thinking about what you wish your family was or what you dreamed your family would be, you're able to enjoy the family that's actually there around you. You look around at the house that God gave you and instead of thinking about all the projects you got to get done and all the things that you wish were different, you just enjoy the fact that that was a good gift from God. You're able to to go out and sit on your back deck and look at the stars for five minutes before you go to bed and thank God for his creation. You don't have to wait for vacation in order to be happy. You can have those little moments of vacationing in the present as you enjoy the moment. But here's the problem again, is that all of our instincts and all of the instincts of everyone around us is to sacrifice the present for the future, to spend your present concerned about the future. But this is what I think Ecclesiastes is telling you, is the wise life is to let the future be whatever God wants it to be and to soak in the present, to trust God with the future, to be healed by God in your past, and to embrace the present, even in its messiness and limitations. And do you see how wildly freeing that is? That, that if, if you don't have to spend your life sort of grinding to create your future, but just trust God with it, your only role is to sit back and to fear God and enjoy the present. That's so freeing. So guys, this is, this is what I'm saying. Did you ever make one of those paper chains when you were a kid? You know, those ones that you like, you have a little strip of paper 
you make a circle with it, you staple them together and it forms a chain. And it's like counting down to something that you're excited for, right? So it's counting down to summer or to a vacation or something like that. Here's the deal. And, and you, you rip one off every day, kind of mark the progress to that thing you're excited for. If you go to rip off that piece of paper and your expectation is that it will be as good in that moment as summer or as good in that moment as vacation, then you are going to be seriously disappointed and your life will stink. But if you go to that chain, knowing what it is, that it's just marking off one more day gone by and enjoying that moment and building anticipation for the thing you're excited for, then every day that you rip off one of those little chains will actually build your anticipation and be great. Your life, every day that goes past, is like one of those links in that chain headed towards eternity. And if you try to have heaven here, if you expect every day to be just like heaven, your life is going to stink and you'll be wildly disappointed. But if you look at life the way that it actually is, and you just soak in each one of those days, those, those little reminders of heaven, those little tastes of Eden in the moment, and you let them build anticipation for heaven, then you'll be able to enjoy God in the process right now. Let me pray. God, um, Thank you for the wisdom given to us in Ecclesiastes. Thank you for what I think is relieving, um, that I don't have to strive, that I don't have to be the architect of my life. I can just be a brick and just let you put me where you want me. And I think that's amazing. God, you're better at that than I am. You're better at running my life than I am. And so we trust you with that, God. And, and I confess my desire to, to be God instead of to trust you. I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for all the ways I try to control my own life. God, we as a church confess our desire to be in control. But we want to come back to you acknowledging that you're better at being God than we are. And we want to trust you. And so teach us, God, how to live in the moment, to trust your control, to embrace all the circumstances that, are, that come our way as gift. God, you're so good and you want to give us good things. And so teach us how to just enjoy the moment, be present in the moment with the good things that you've given us and the hard things. Help us to know when to weep and when to mourn and when to rejoice and when to celebrate and help us to honor you in the process. We love you. Amen.